Welcome to the CEC report for the 4th of January 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. It's been quite a while. Yep, good to be back. Mm. Back into full swing, I might add, because today's subjects will be covering panicked moves to reflate housing bubble as whole world braces for 2019 crash and permanent war machine erupts over Trump's Syria withdrawal. So firstly, panicked moves to reflate housing bubble as whole world braces for 2019 crash. Now, Craig, an extraordinary intervention was launched in mid-December here in Australia prior to Christmas by financial and regulatory authorities to save the Australian housing bubble. And what everyone should have in the back of their minds here is the question, what is at stake if our housing bubble busts? Well, Elisa, as we've talked on this program many times, we're looking at you know, 60 to 70% of the major banks' assets are in housing mortgages. So for the housing prices crash, and I saw figures yesterday from Digital Finance Analytics, our Martin North project, a program where prices in Darwin have gone down by 25%, right? And you've got the average collapse in prices just in the December period of 8, 7% uh, mm. here in, um, in in Melbourne and 8 plus percent in Sydney. And some of those, they're averages. So there's some yeah. areas that have gone down much more. So what you're looking at is the collapse of assets of the banks, right? Because mortgages are regarded as assets. So where does that leave the bank's balance sheets in terms of a collapsing asset? Uh, values. Mm. That's where the seriousness of this comes in. Mm. And what I find interesting, Elisa, unlike the 2008 crash where there was all this denial about the fact that there's no possibility the world's financial system could crash, now there's like a quiet recognition behind the scenes this system's coming down and there's all sorts of yeah. quiet panic happening. Yeah. Right. But you don't see the same hysteria quite yet as you saw in 2008. Mm. Why? It's because people know the system's coming down and they're covering it up. And we'll go through some of the warnings shortly, but um, the warnings about the Australian housing bubble have already been recognised internationally many times over the past year. But the chief economist, international economist of Deutsche Bank, recognised it uh, just recently. Torsten Slock is his name. And he included a house price crash in Australia and Canada among his top 30 factors endangering global markets in 2019. And there's also been warnings from leading economists that the Reserve Bank of Australia could cut official interest rates, which are already at record lows, into emergency territory sometime this year. Now, the action that I was referring to um, in terms of the intervention to reflate the housing bubble has taken three forms that we know of publicly, well, that have become public thus far. Firstly, on the 19th of December, it was revealed that RBA Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe had personally spoken to each of the major banks, urging them to increase their mortgage lending, which of course had been affected by the results of the Royal Commission and by certain um, uh, things that were brought into force, such as a cap on investment lending for property investment of 10% annually uh, and 30% of new lending uh, was the restriction put on interest-only loans. Now, the same day as the RBA governor made this, these calls, APRA chairman Wayne Byers announced that the regulator had dropped those limits on interest-only lending and so forth that had been imposed through the year. So it was complying with the program. And then in the last couple of days, the Treasury has made a similar intervention where the Australian reported on the 3rd of January 
that Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has called on the banks to reignite, quote, affordable and timely lending after new figures revealed national house prices suffered their worst year since the global financial crisis. Mm. Um, but when he says, you know, that he wants the banks to reinstate affordable lending, look, what they had cut out a result of, as a result of the Royal Commission was just a, a package, a massive package of fraudulent lending, as we've exposed, and you can see one of our last videos on the CEC report from last year, which was an interview with Denise Braley and a longer presentation on our website with her, uh, which exposes the extent, the mammoth extent on the fraud that was allowing this housing bubble. So this is what um, these authorities are wanting to extend again, bring it back because they can see the thing's going to blow. Um, the former mining magnate Hugh Morgan, his insight into why Josh Frydenberg is doing this was he said they're trying to send a message to the Royal Commission, don't make your report too tough or the whole place stops. And of course the Royal Commission will be reporting uh, in February and yeah. they're very concerned that this may include calls to really strictly regulate the banking system in the form of what we've proposed and what we ran a massive campaign for last year, which is Glass-Steagall uh, banking regulation. Well, that's the only way out of this, Elisa, because this process of the bank speculation has built up not just in the last couple of years, but over the last 40 years of the deregulation of the entire financial and monetary system because of the takedown of the Glass-Steagall regulations that we had implicitly within our banking system. Now that meant that merchant banking investment banks, these highly risky, risky operations, were allowed to get access to people's deposits to speculate with. So what we're saying with Glass-Steagall, which is getting more and more support within our own Australian Federal Parliament, because we do, we, we have had legislation in the Parliament and there'll be more legislation being brought forward this year, to strictly separate out the necessary commercial retail banking systems, which are the boring banking systems that deal with mortgages and loans and so forth, and people's deposits from all the other speculative activity like investment banking, merchant banking, all the insurance avenues, the stockbroking houses, all of that stuff that the banks are involved in, they have to get out of it, completely rid themselves of it if they want to remain a bank under, in our view. So this is the way that you deal with it. Now, this is a political decision. The politicians of today can continue to ignore the reality that the global financial crisis is going to come down mm. in 2019, continue with the same failed system of the last 40 years, or there has to be a new system, a, a, politically, uh, a, a policy brought into place where we say, no, what's most important here is the economy and a banking system that is protected from speculation and we then have a, we have a policy of a national bank that we're writing legislation mm. for right now, which is a national bank that will control the private banks and then emit credit into the economy so that we can stimulate large-scale infrastructure development projects, which then have the ability of providing good-paying, high-paying jobs, good high-paying jobs, and actually build this country mm. out of the mess it's in now. Yeah, definitely. And there's been a lot of... Um, there's been a real increase in calls for Glass-Steagall, mm -hmm. particularly last year, and people should engage, viewers should engage with our campaign and go and see their Member of Parliament demanding Glass-Steagall. They know about it. They know what it is. We were in Parliament seven times last year discussing this with them. Um, call in for a copy of our, this is the last alert service for 2018, and in there is an article which documents 
a real explosion in the calls for Glass-Steagall coming from not just Australia, although the bulk of them happen to be in Australia because of our campaign, but there's many from around the world. Uh, and those voices have really intensified in the last few years, but particularly over the last year. So call us, get some more information, find out more and join the campaign. And we'll, we'll take a quick break, but we'll be right back to discuss uh, more of the warnings globally over the new oncoming 2019 crash. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the oncoming 2019 crash and desperate efforts by, in particular, the Australian government and banking authorities to reflate our housing bubble. It could actually be, when it blows, one of the triggers of the global crash, and it's being discussed as such around the world. But I just want to go through some of the developments, really, across December, the Christmas period. It was a pretty wild month, and some of the market um, shenanigans are continuing and instabilities. Uh, today even. But we had three or a number of warnings actually from leading representatives or former representatives of the US Federal Reserve in December, including Janet Yellen, who as recently as mid last year had said there'd be no new financial crisis in my lifetime. So she came out in mid-December and said she warned about the high levels of corporate debt and she described it as being similar to the debt build up and then the trading of that debt, which led to the 2007-08 global financial crisis and she said any kind of negative shock can lead to a lot of corporate bankruptcies, a lot of distressed credit crunch, a lot of downgrading of loans, a lot of investor losses and she did say that the regulation is inadequate and she's worried about it. Uh, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors member Lael Brainard noted the sizeable growth in leveraged which is risky lending accompanied, she said, by a notable deterioration in underwriting standards. Of course, you've got about 80% of leveraged loans that have very light covenants governing them. And she also warned that most of these leveraged loans are packaged into high-risk collateralised loan obligations, otherwise known as CLOs, which are very similar to the mortgage-backed securities which bundled up mortgages in the 2007-08 crisis and precipitated the GFC. Then you had Alan Greenspan even, former Fed chairman, on the 18th of December in a CNN interview who warned that the bull market is coming to an end and you'll need to run for cover soon. Another warning in the New York Times on the 10th of December was um, asking, are you ready for the financial crisis of 2019? Reporting that the anxiety that we could be in for a replay of 1929 or 1987 or 2000 or 2008 has become palpable, not just for the Aspen set, but for any American, i.e. everyone. Um, now, over Christmas, of course, you had the US Federal Reserve raising interest rates on the 19th December, so that was an exacerbating factor, and hysteria erupted when uh, rumours started circulating that Donald Trump might try to sack the Fed Chairman Jay Powell because he'd opposed the rate rise, and they were just rumours. Mm -hmm. But as markets plummeted, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin made matters uh, much worse, actually, because of two things which were revealed. One, he spoke with the, spoke with the head of the big six American banks, reporting back that they had ample liquidity and have not experienced any clearance or margin issues and that the markets continue to function properly. I think that just made everyone much more, more nervous. nervous yeah. 
Um, and then he announced he was convening the Plunge Protection Team, which is officially known as the President's Working Group on Financial Markets and includes the Fed Board of Governors, Securities and Exchange Commission and Commodities Future Commi uh, Trading Commission. Plus, he included also the Comptroller of the Currency and the FDIC, the Federal De Deposit Insurance Corporation. So he brought all the top financiers together, um, you know, on a par with what we were doing back home in Australia to try to figure out what they could do. I think people saw that because the markets mm. collapsed a 1,000 points yeah. in the US. And Christmas and then, Eve was Christmas, the height of it. And then bang, it. straight up 500 again. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I said to my wife at that point, she says, I wonder what the plunge protection team's yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. Because this, this is the way they used to do it, and they, they do, do it now. But yeah, they won't say what right. was done behind the scenes. Mm. Um, the other thing, and this is very important because it has a parallel to the 2007 period where there was a complete credit crunch and lending freeze, in, interbank lending freeze and etc. This was paralleled in December uh, when you had junk bond markets and loan issuance completely seizing up. It had been foreshadowed in October where Wells Fargo and Barclays kept a $415 million loan on their books after they failed to sell it, which is highly unusual. Then in December, several large companies withdrew similar loan issues which were to fund expansions or refinancing and even by after putting out generous incentives and substantial discounts several deals had to be cancelled or postponed the financial times reported about this that the junk bond market for both loans and bonds had frozen up and the u.s credit market had quote ground to a halt now in december also not a single company had borrowed money through the US high yield corporate bond market as of the 17th of December. And the reports were that if that continued for the full month, um, such an incident had not occurred since November 2008. So all these parallels were looming. And even high quality investment grade bonds have experienced hiccups with a number of deals being pulled. Bloomberg News reported on the 20th of December that this was continuing. They said in just the past four trading days, investors have pulled $2.2 from all loan mutual funds and exchange traded funds. That brings withdrawals from the asset class to almost $9 billion since mid-November. And they went on to say that it's a tough time for banks trying to sell risky loans. And of course the problem is that there are so many risky loans to be sold and resold um, you have this massive corporate debt bubble, which some put at nine trillion US dollars. It's nearly doubled since 2007. Um, the IMF had, of course, warned in April 2017 that 20% of that debt would be unpayable if interest rates, rates started rising, which they have been. Um, and related to that, the Bank for International Settlements and IMF have both been warning of a similar crisis. Uh, the London Telegraph reported on these warnings of the credit crunch and it was reprinted in the AFR actually. Um, they also warned of another danger which is the risk of central counterparties. These are bodies that were set up after the global financial uh, crisis at the request of the G20 to act as a middleman between banks that were trading derivatives. Of course, we always said this would make it even worse. Which, you know, we've said that many times on this program, Elisa. Exactly. These things are a disaster. But it's, again, yeah. same, same part of the mentality that they're trying to solve the problem within the problem that's created. Yeah, without really changing we're, anything we're changing, fundamental. Yeah, exactly. Don't change anything fundamental. 
try and manage it and yeah. manage it. It's not going to yeah. work. So the BIS quarterly report, the Bank for International Settlements, um, said that these central counterparties could cause a destabilising feedback loop, amplifying stress. And in September, a Scandinavian, one of these central counterparties, had nearly melted down already, actually. Um, and the BIS said this could unravel with potentially system-wide effects, meaning the broader derivatives bubble, which is worth over a quadrillion dollars. The fallacy of this, Elisa, is that only a, a fraction of the derivatives are actually inside these central counterparties, yeah. right? It, it, this doesn't represent all the derivatives no. in the world. So it's actually a fallacy there because mm. you've got all these other derivatives instruments that, have, that aren't controlled. Yeah, it's not off really the, off the books. real regulation at all. No, no. And the IMF had also warned that CCPs increase the risk of a failure of the infrastructure itself and could lead to a catastrophe if all the layers of defence were overrun by a big default because yeah. these CCPs have become too big to fail themselves, themselves yeah. and they don't have the capital requirements that banks have as bad as they are in themselves. And one other thing to mention um, is that the 10th largest Italian bank has also just crashed and has been taken over by the European Central Bank. So it's early days on that front, but there are major crisis fronts that we've got to watch here. So this is the, why the urgency to bring the kinds of banking regulation, reorganise the entire system as we've been talking about. So we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to come back, change the topic a little bit and talk about the shift out of Syria of US troops. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Permanent war machine erupts over Trump's Syria withdrawal. So on 19th of December, President Trump announced to the 2,000 US troops they have in Syria would be withdrawn and he cited the historic victory against ISIS, which is very true, only the US didn't play the major role in it, it was mm -hmm. Russia. Uh, however, the fact that the US has um, made this decision is actually a defeat for the policy of regime change where the Anglo-Americans wanted to stay in it until Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, was gone. That was the original intention, it always was the intention. Uh, and it's a defeat for the policy of permanent war in that entire region, the Middle East, North Africa. Uh, and it's a victory also for Syria and Russia protecting the sovereignty of Syria, uh, which was their intention the whole way through. Now, some in the US said this was a sudden announcement. They all went goo over it um, without consultation, etc., etc. But of course, Trump campaigned for it um, when he got elected president. He campaigned for it again in the midterm elections. He wanted it done within 30 days. He's had to back off that time frame. The Pentagon has insisted it'll take longer than that. Of course, obviously there's a lot of elements that are trying to make him budge from this decision as he did when he announced it or said that he wanted to do it six months ago. They forced him to back off somewhat, but it looks like it will go ahead over the next four months and they'll be out within that four month time frame. The response, of course, the attack on Trump for doing this was vicious. Uh, he had two immediate resignations, the defense secretary, Jim Mattis, and Brett McGurk, who was a special envoy of the fight against ISIS. Um, there were attacks from major allies, from Trump's own party, from major media. They were saying, you know, Trump's washing his hands of ISIS. You know, he's going to allow ISIS to explode again. This was a Christmas present for Putin. All those kind of attacks. Uh, uh, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said it would be a big win for ISIS, for Bashar al-Assad and for Russia. Um, he later calmed down a bit after he received certain assurances from Trump. Um, 
But as I said, this is actually a victory for the sovereign nation state. When you look at what the lead up was to this war, Syria was targeted for regime change by the United States along with six other Middle Eastern and African countries in 2001 when they made, they drew up a list, this was revealed by General Wesley Clark um, a few years ago. Of course this was after 9-11 and they started by going into Iraq but the plan to um, have regime change in Iraq had existed since 1991 which was the time when uh, Dick Cheney was the Defence Secretary and if you've watched the new movie about him you'll have the full gamut of what this guy was all about but he wrote a defence strategy policy where he said we cannot allow in the post-Soviet era any other major nation to rival the United States and they mapped out a whole plan to redraw the map of the Middle East. That was a key part of it which these seven nations um, including Syria, including Libya, including Iraq, Iran was a part of and of course the so-called um, uprising against Assad uh, began 10 years after they drew up these plans in 2001 and at that they were encouraged uh, with Western support mm -hmm. initially in the um, initial so-called rebellion against Assad but then of course the US went in, they armed, they funded and they trained the so-called moderate rebels. Um, the US Defence Intelligence Agency actually warned in 2012 that if they continued to do this it would allow an Islamic State to be created because it was bolstered these fundamental Islamic forces. Uh, and until the Russians intervened in September 2015, ISIS was barely touched. There was no impact on driving out ISIS whatsoever. So it's not true that the US pulling out at this stage will allow them to regroup. And look at Trump's reasoning. Uh, when he tweeted initially about it, he said he had campaigned against, quote, the never-ending wars. He also tweeted, quote, we have defeated ISIS in Syria. My only reason for being there during the Trump presidency, meaning you know, we're not there for regime change, we were there to defeat ISIS, therefore we should now get out. And part of the freak out um, at Trump doing this, in the words of Obama's former Assistant Secretary of Defence, Derek Chollett, is he said, this drives a stake into the heart of the administration's Iran strategy, which was the next nation off the chopping block to be um, regime changed. One of the seven targeted nations that I mentioned, and John Bolton, who was part of the whole Dick Cheney apparatus from 1991 onward through this whole neoconservative plan, he'd said in September, we'll never leave Syria so long as Iran is there, because Iran was helping Russia and Syria uh, to defeat ISIS. I think you're going to see the attacks on Trump escalate over this next period because of the global financial crisis and his potential to do things like this, which are completely out of the box. Maybe Trump will go with Glass-Steagall, given that there's a new Congress coming in. But the other thing, Elisa, is that the attacks on Trump because of this so-called involvement in the Russia rigging the elections. Mm. This is designed to marginalise Russia, to, to stop any collaboration between Trump and Russia whatsoever. Because look, Russia is, is part of the BRICS group of countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. This, there's been enormous development in this part of the world. There's been a complete counter-position of economic development, mm. a push for peace amongst all these countries, but also China's developing role in the world with the One Belt, One Road initiative. You know, you're seeing a complete uh, counter-position to these regime-change-type wars that we've seen under the likes of this evil uh, bugger um, you know, Dick Cheney. Mm. Uh, there's a complete counter-position there now, right? Mm. So that's what 
the neocons are trying to uh, prevent at all costs prevent at that all costs. kind of collaboration. And that's how people have to look at the this and that, world. that kind of collaboration, Russia, China, the US major powers fighting for a new financial architecture completely fits yeah. with our proposals to re-regulate the Australian banking system, get our real economy going again. So that's all we've got time for. Thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week.